Chapter 4 Ocular Demonstration Inscribed on the card which the lounger leaves on the table of Mademoiselle de Seven, or Madame de Lancy, is the name of Raymond Marol. The lounger, then, is Raymond Marol, and it is he whom we must follow on the morning after the stormy interview in the pavilion. He occupies a charming apartment in the Champs-Élysées, small, of course, as befitting a bachelor, but furnished in the best taste. On entering his rooms, there is one thing you could scarcely fail to notice, and this is a surprising neatness, the almost mathematical precision with which everything is arranged. Books, pictures, desks, pistols, small swords, boxing gloves, riding whips, canes, and guns. Every object is disposed in an order quite unusual in a bachelor's apartment. But this habit of neatness is one of the idiosyncrasies of Monsieur Marol. It is to be seen in his exquisitely appointed dress, in his carefully trimmed moustache. It is to be heard even in the inflections of his voice, which rise and fall with rather monotonous, though melodious, regularity, and which are never broken by anything so vulgar as anger or emotion. At ten o'clock this morning, he is still seated at breakfast. He has eaten nothing, but he is drinking his second cup of strong coffee, and it is easy to see that he is thinking very deeply. Yes, he mutters, I must find a way to convince her. She must be thoroughly convinced before she will be induced to act. My first blows have told so well, I must not fail in my masterstroke. But how to convince her? Words alone will not satisfy her long. There must be ocular demonstration. He finishes his cup of coffee and sits playing with the teaspoon, clinking it with a low musical sound against the china teacup. Presently, he hits it with one loud ringing stroke. That stroke is a note of triumph. He has been working a problem and has found the solution. He takes up his hat and hurries out of the house, but as soon as he is out of doors, he slackens his step and resumes his usual lounging gait. He crosses the Place de la Concorde and makes his way to the boulevard and only turns aside when he reaches the Italian opera house. It is to the stage door he directs his steps. An old man, the doorkeeper, is busy in the little dark hall, manufacturing a pot au and warming his hands at the same time at a tiny stove in a corner. He is quite accustomed to the apparition of a stylish young man, so he scarcely looks up when the shadow of Raymond Marol darkens the doorway. "'Good morning, Monsieur Concierge,' says Raymond. "'You are very busy, I see.' A little domestic avocation, that is all, monsieur, being a bachelor. The doorkeeper is rather elderly and somewhat snuffy for a bachelor, but he is very fond of informing the visitors of the stage door that he has never sacrificed his liberty at the shrine of Hymen. He thinks, perhaps, that they might scruple to give their messages to a married man. Not too busy, then, for a little conversation, my friend, asked the visitor, "'slipping a five-franc piece into the porter's dingy hand. "'Never too busy for that, monsieur, "'and the porter abandons the pot to its fate 
and does, with his colored handkerchief, a knock-kneed-looking easy-chair, which he presents to Monsieur. Monsieur is very condescending, and the doorkeeper is very communicative. He gives Monsieur a great deal of useful information about the salaries of the principal dancers, the bouquets and diamond bracelets thrown to them, the airs and graces indulged in by them, and other interesting facts. Presently, Monsieur, who has been graciously, though rather languidly, interested in all this, says, Do you happen to have amongst your supernumeraries, or courses, or any of your insignificant people, one of those mimics so generally met with in a theater? Ah, says the doorkeeper, chuckling, I see Monsieur knows a theater. We have indeed two or three mimics, but one above all, a chorus singer, a great man who can strike off an imitation which is life itself, a drunken, dissolute fellow, Monsieur, or he would have taken to principal characters and made himself a name, a fellow with a soul for nothing but dominoes and vulgar wine shops, but a wonderful mimic. Ah, and he imitates, I suppose, all your great people, your prima donna, your basso, your tenor, "'hazards Monsieur Raymond Morol. "'Yes, Monsieur, you should hear him mimic this new tenor, "'this Monsieur Gaston Delancey, "'who has made such a sensation this season. "'He is not a bad-looking fellow, "'pretty much the same height as Delancey, "'and he can assume his manner, voice, and walk "'so completely that... "'Perhaps in a dark room you could scarcely tell one from the other, eh? "'Precisely, Monsieur.' I have rather a curiosity about these sort of people, and I should like to see this man if... He hesitates, jingling some silver in his pocket. Nay, monsieur, says the porter, nothing more easy. They call the chorus to rehearsal while the great people are lounging over their breakfasts. We shall find him either on the stage or in one of the dressing rooms playing dominoes. This way, monsieur... Raymond Marol follows the doorkeeper down dark passages and up innumerable flights of stairs, till very high up he stops at a low door, on the other side of which there is evidently a rather noisy party. This door the porter opens without ceremony, and he and Monsieur Marol enter a long low room with bare whitewashed walls, scrawled over with charcoal caricatures of prima donnas and tenors, with impossible noses and spindle legs. Seated at a deal table is a group of young men, shabbily dressed, playing at dominoes, while others look on and bet upon the game. They are all smoking tiny cigarettes, which look like damp curl papers, and which last about two minutes each. Pardon me, Monsieur Mousset, says the porter, addressing one of the domino players, a good-looking young man, with a pale dark face and black hair, "'Pardon me that I disturb your pleasant game, "'but I bring a gentleman who wishes to make your acquaintance.' "'The chorus singer rises, giving a lingering look "'at a double six he was just going to play, "'and advances to where Monsieur Morol is standing. "'At Monsieur's service,' he says, "'with an unstudied but graceful bow. "'Raymond Morol, with an ease of manner, all his own, "'passes his arm through that of the young man,' "'and leads him out into the passage. "'I have heard, Monsieur Mousset, "'that you possess a talent for mimicry, "'which is of a very superior order. 
"'Are you willing to assist with this talent "'in a little farce I am preparing "'for the amusement of a lady? "'If so, you will have a claim "'which I shall not forget, "'on my gratitude and on my purse.' "'This last word makes Paul Mousset "'prick up his ears. "'Poor fellow, his last coin "'has gone for the half ounce of tobacco "'he has just consumed. "'He expresses himself only too happy "'to obey the commands of Monsieur.' Monsieur suggests that they shall repair to an adjoining café, at which they can have half an hour's quiet conversation. They do so, and at the end of the half hour, Monsieur Morol parts with Paul Mousset at the door of this café. As they separate, Raymond looks at his watch. Half past eleven. All goes better than I could have even hoped. This man will do very well for our friend Elvino, and the lady shall have ocular demonstration. Now for the rest of my work, and tonight, my proud and beautiful heiress, for you. As the clock strikes ten that night, a hackney coach stops close to the entrance of the Bois de Boulogne, and as the coachman checks his horse, a gentleman emerges from the gloom and goes up to the door of the coach, which he opens before the driver can dismount. This gentleman is Monsieur Raymond Morol, and Valerie Delancey is seated in the coach. Punctual, madame, he says. On the smallest matters, you are superior to your sex. May I request you to step out and walk with me for some little distance? The lady, who is thickly veiled, only bows her head in reply, but she is by his side in a moment. He gives the coachman some directions, and the man drives off a few paces. He then offers his arm to Valerie. "'Nay, monsieur,' she says in a cold, hard voice. "'I can follow you, or I can walk by your side. "'I had rather not take your arm.' "'Perhaps it is as well for this man's schemes "'that it is too dark for his companion "'to see the smile that lifts his black moustache "'or the glitter in his blue eyes. "'He is something of a physiologist "'as well as a mathematician, this man.' and he can tell what she has suffered since last night by the change in her voice alone. It has a dull and monotonous sound, and the tone seems to have gone out of it forever. If the dead could speak, they might speak thus. This way, then, madame, he says, my first object is to convince you of the treachery of the man for whom you have sacrificed so much. Have you strength to live through the discovery? I lived through last night. Come, monsieur, waste no more time in words, or I shall think you are a charlatan. Let me hear from his lips that I have cause to hate him. Follow me, then, and softly. He leads her into the wood. The trees are very young as yet, but all is obscure tonight. There is not a star in the sky. The December night is dark and cold. A slight fall of snow has whitened the ground and deadens the sound of footsteps. Raymond and Valerie might be two shadows as they glide amongst the trees. After they have walked about a quarter of a mile, he catches her by the arm and draws her hurriedly into the shadow of a group of young pine trees. Now, he says, now listen. She hears a voice whose every tone she knows. At first there is a rushing sound in her ears, as if all the blood were surging from her heart up to her brain. But presently she hears distinctly. 
Presently, too, her eyes grow somewhat accustomed to the gloom, and she sees a few paces from her the dim outline of a tall figure, familiar to her. It is Gaston de Lancy, who is standing with one arm round the slight waist of a young girl, his head bending down with the graceful droop she knows so well as he looks in her face. Malroll's voice whispers in her ear, "'The girl is a dancer from one of the minor theatres, "'whom he knew before he was a great man. "'Her name, I think, is Rosette, or something like that. "'She loves him very much, perhaps almost as much as you do, "'in spite of the quarterings on your shield. "'He feels the slender hand, which before disdained to lean upon his arm, "'now clasp his wrist and tighten, "'as if each taper finger were an iron vice.' "'Listen,' he says again. "'Listen to the drama, madame. "'I am the chorus. "'It is the girl who is speaking. "'But Gaston, this marriage, "'this marriage which has almost broken my heart, "'was a sacrifice to our love, my Rosette. "'For your sake alone would I have made such a sacrifice. "'But this haughty lady's wealth "'will make us happy in a distant land.' She little thinks, poor fool, for whose sake I endure her patrician airs, her graces of the old regime, her caprices and her folly. Only be patient, Rosette, and trust me. The day that is to unite us forever is not far distant. Believe me. It is the voice of Gaston de Lancy. Who should better know those tones than his wife? Who should better know them than she to whose proud heart they strike death? The girl speaks again. And you do not love this fine lady, Gaston. Only tell me that you do not love her. Again, the familiar voice speaks. Love her? Bah, we never love those fine ladies who give us such tender glances from opera boxes. We never admire these great heiresses who fall in love with a handsome face and have not enough modesty to keep the sentiment a secret, who think they honor us by a marriage which they are ashamed to confess, and who fancy we must be devoted to them, because after their fashion they are in love with us. "'Have you heard enough?' asked Raymond Morol. "'Give me a pistol or a dagger,' she gasped in a hoarse whisper. "'Let me shoot him dead, or stab him to the heart, that I may go away and die in peace.' "'So,' muttered Raymond, "'she has heard enough.' "'Come, madame, yet stay one last look. "'You are sure that this is Monsieur de Lancy?' "'The man and the girl are standing a few yards from them. "'His back is turned to Valerie. "'But she would know him amongst a thousand "'by the dark hair and the peculiar bend of the head. "'Sure,' she answers. "'Am I myself?' "'Come, then. "'We have another place to visit tonight. "'You are satisfied,' Are you not, madame, now that you have had ocular demonstration? Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.